how Jesus has surpassed everything. He's completed everything. He's fulfilled everything. He has gone past what we can see. In fact, he has even ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The ascension is something Christians don't think about a lot in our modern times. We don't talk about it a lot, but it is one of the most important points of Christianity, and that's why it's there in the creed. The idea that after Christ achieved atonement for us by his blood, that is, after he justified you, after he earned the forgiveness of your sins, and then resurrected himself in order to show his victory over your sin, over your death, and over your former tyrant, the devil, he then left. He left. But he also didn't go anywhere other than to be in charge of everything. So that as that psalm that we chanted this morning, Psalm 110 said, he now rules in the midst of his enemies. Meredith and I were just talking this morning about something called mass formation psychosis. It's a form of community hypnotism that happens in pre-totalitarian states. Make of that what you will. It sounded really bad as we talked about it. And she said, thank God Jesus is in charge. And I believe I said to her, amen. Because even when there are various evil men who rise and take for themselves all manner of things, which we should expect to be a constant thing in history, nonetheless, the church of Jesus Christ is like a boat, an ark, going through that flood, being completely taken care of by him. And that's what he is doing at the right hand of God. He is not worried about which empire gets to be the most awesome empire in the annals of history, or which people get to be the most famous and popular and talented people in the annals of history. He is worried about you remembering that this earth is going to die and that you have been saved from that death by his surpassing this earth in his death, resurrection, and now for you, ascension. Now, again, the book of Hebrews is going to be all about then how the old is passing away and the new has come in Christ. But this is something to be received by faith alone. That is, this is something you can only believe. You must believe that this world is dying and that, as chapter 13 says, here we have no continuing city. But we look for a city that is to come. You could say it a different way. Here we sojourn in tents-like bodies, but we look for bodies that will be like a building that is to come. Huh? Now, this idea again of Christ surpassing is going to run through all the various portions of the book of Hebrews. Remember that our goal this year is we look at a different book every week, and we're kind of getting back into this after the Christmas season. Our goal this year is that you would be able then to go home this week and open up that book and kind of find your way through it and not be completely overwhelmed. Like, what is this? I don't even know what to make of this. Well, Hebrews is a book that can overwhelm you. It's, it's 13 chapters long, and it's filled with lots of Old Testament ideas. But if you can remember, it's all about how Christ has fulfilled and now surpassed those ideas, and you have something to start with. If you can remember that his ascension as the Son of God for the sake of the future kingdom which shall come on his return, you also then have a leg to stand on. 
So super overview, very briefly, chapter one through four is going to focus on how Christ is God incarnate. And in this way, he has surpassed the angels and he has surpassed us. And yet also by being God in our flesh, he has made us surpass the angels and this dying world. Chapters four through six is going to then introduce an idea that the theologians call typology. It's maybe easier to reckon with as foreshadowing. The whole Old Testament prophecy, the whole story of the Old Covenant is a foreshadowing of what Christ eventually will do for true and for real. Foreshadowing doesn't ever say exactly like this, exactly at this time. Rather, it gives you hints. It teases you with the idea. And so then from there, the book will focus on two major types of foreshadowing from the Old Testament. Melchizedek, who we heard the readings about, this very brief section of scripture in Genesis, and then this one psalm, Psalm 110, that we chanted together, and how Christ has come to be the true Melchizedek. His name meaning king of righteousness and his actions in history being the king of Salem. That's the king of peace. Think about it. The king of righteousness, the king of peace, the high priest of God who brings out bread and wine. And you can see the symbolism of old becoming fulfilled in what Christ actually and authentically did. Moving from this priesthood idea, the second major type, the second major symbol in Hebrews will be that of the temple itself. The tabernacle, the altar, the sacrifices of the blood of the sheep and bulls and goats, which are not able to purify us from sin the way that the sacrifice of the incarnate Son of God is able to do. That's chapters 7 through 10. focuses on those two typologies, the foreshadowing of the Old Testament being fulfilled and surpassed by Jesus. Chapter 10 and 11 gets into sections that you might have more familiarity with, especially chapter 11. The whole focus of these two chapters is that salvation is by faith alone. That it is through a promise that you believe that you are restored to a right relationship with God. There is nothing you can do to add to this promise. There is nothing you can do to make this promise invalid. The only thing you can do is not believe the promise. Of course, since you're a Christian, you know that you do believe the promise, or at the very least, you hunger to do so, which is to believe the promise. And so you can know that this faith is a gift that God the Holy Spirit is working in you in order, again, that you might see past this dying veil of tears, which is going to be rolled up and burned like an old piece of cloth, to the coming new heavens and new earth, which will restore Everything you lost in this life, 100-fold, and then so. More than you could ask or imagine, like unto a very resurrection from the dead, which in fact is what it will be. Chapter 11 will specifically talk about how this is what all the Old Testament saints believed in. By faith, they waited. By faith, they waited. By faith, they waited. They did other things while they waited but they continually waited for the fulfilling of the promise, which you've heard me say it before. After the fall, it was given to Eve. A son will be born who will crush the dragon. Later, it's given to Abraham. From you shall the blessing come. Later, it's given to Isaac. 
and to Jacob. And Joseph knows the promise. So he says, bury me by those guys so that I'm near them when the resurrection happens. Later, it's given to David. Later, it's given to Mary. And then it's fulfilled in her womb. As the man, the boy is born again, king, not only of the Jews, but king of you nations as well. Like those great cloud of witnesses mentioned in chapter 11, this list of names from the Old Testament, fantastic stories there, by the way, good Bible study. Just go through and look up each name in the Old Testament as it lists it and go read their story. It'll it'll take you a while to do it. Um, After that idea, living by faith, verse chapter 12, verse one, we'll look at that here in a moment, talks about them as a great cloud of witnesses. That is those who testify what they have seen that are there to encourage us to know again that our God is the true God who makes good on his promises, who always fulfills his word, and who by his surpassing of death and ascension into heaven at the right hand of God has the power and authority to do just that. The rest of chapter 12 and 13, parts of which we'll look at here again in a moment, are then an exhortation. It's into this question of how then shall we live or what does this mean for you or what does being a Christian look like now? And that is what I want to give our time and attention to looking at some of these words as again a survey and overview of the most accessible passages. So we're not going to dig into Melchizedek so much. We're going to dig into those parts that are very, very easy to just kind of believe and receive. Yeah? And so I encourage you to make note of some of those, the ones that speak to you most. And then this week, when you get a chance, go and just look at one of them. If you can't do more, just go look at one of these sections and maybe even read it every day. Let it become part of you. Let it be what you know your God wants you to believe. Okay, so the book of Hebrews in our Pew Bible starts on page 1001. If you're looking in your own Bible, it'll be at the very end of Paul's letters, which is after 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. It's there because the early church did believe that Paul wrote this book. Many modern scholars think it was not Paul, but maybe someone like Apollos or Barnabas, guys from the book of Acts. You can debate that. It's a fascinating little story. The main thing is that it doesn't start like most of Paul's letters. Usually he says, Paul, an apostle, God sent me, Jesus sent me, here, I'm going to talk to you. He doesn't do that in this one. It just kind of comes out of the gate. And that's what leads to the discussion about who wrote it. It is an unknown author so far as its own text says. The way you might say this is by Paul anyway is to say, well, it's a sermon of Paul's that somebody wrote down. And there is no question it does read very much like a sermon until the very end. Okay, so we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this opening section where he's going to insist that Christ has surpassed everything. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There's an Old Testament. Lots of people were part of it, yeah? Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus has come and surpassed the prophets, whom his son, he appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. So now we have the son as both the creator and the inheritor of the future. Verse three, he, this is Jesus, now the son is the radiance 
of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't know how much stronger the language about Jesus being God can get. You have elements of the book of Colossians there. You have elements of John's gospel, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. You have that there. But again, then, what do you take from this? To know that Jesus, born of Mary in Bethlehem, is the almighty God's everlasting, eternal, only begotten son, having become flesh in order to take the power of this world for you. After, rest of the verse, making purification for sins, right? It's a good Lutheran bit there. He justified you. He bought you with a price. After making purification for sins, dead and risen, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. There's your ascension talk. The author of the Hebrews is going to care a great deal for this ascension. He comes out of the gates with the idea. He has been taken into heaven and is ruling all things. Verse 4 having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, right? So now uh, an angel has no power when compared to the best man there ever was. The best man there ever was is supremely more powerful, more beautiful, and more radiant than any angel there ever was, so that indeed all angels now, rightly, bow down and worship him. All right, the rest of chapter one is a bunch of Psalm quotes and Old Testament quotes about how Christ has surpassed the angels. What I wanna skip forward to is chapter two, verses one through four, where he has a, a conclusion coming out of this. What should we think since we know this about Jesus? It says this, chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is important. You cannot add to your faith. You cannot earn your salvation. It's not given us as the church even to sit here and save others by mission. Rather, what we are to do is guard what's already been given. It's all here. It's all delivered. It's all for you to believe. The war is now not to win with it, but to prevent the devil from stealing it from you. And the exhortation then is how? Pay attention. Pay attention to it. Listen to it. Encourage yourself to have these words be more than just a 15-minute diatribe on a Sunday morning. These words are to be your heartbeat. They are to be your life source. They are to be your hope and your rest. I don't want to belabor this next point, but how often do you go to rest in some form of leisure and end up more tired afterwards than when you started? I would consider that it's quite often these things happen, especially late at night with the blue light keeping you up and your eyes about to bleed. Huh? Consider this sometime. Before you do that, I'm not saying never do that. Before you do that, open the Bible for five minutes and pray a psalm. Ponder it. Pray it twice or even three times. Let the words get into you. You will find rest for your soul. All right, pay closer attention, lest the devil, like a nasty raven, come and steal away that seed from you. Verse two, 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about Sinai there, by the way, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, old covenant punishments for sin. Verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so it's not like the gospel has taken away the wrath of God from evil. It has merely promised you that he has pulled you out of the evil for you to believe that he is for you and not against you. But if you decide that the vomit that you've been pulled out of is what you want to go eat again, at some point he may just let you be there and hold you in your wickedness and hypocrisy without ever letting you know what a dog you have become. Now again, you're here. You're the choir. You're the one that I'm preaching to because you're listening. So let this be the warning that stirs you, not a condemnation that leaves you believing God has left you. What he wants here is for you to, again, wake up one more time this morning. He goes on and says that it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard this is the resurrection of the dead. This is the very gospel. The fact that Jesus is king, that makes you a son of God. That makes you a vassal of the Lord. That makes you a temple of the Holy Spirit. While then God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You can think of the book of Acts there, right? That in the apostolic age, as a sign that the old covenant was over, the apostles themselves had many signs and wonders which they did in order to demonstrate they'd been sent by the same God who was the God of the Old Testament. But all of it was to affirm and confirm their message to those who were there then that Christ is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. And so that is the thing to pay attention to. That is the thing to remember and believe. All right, looking at our time here, um, let's jump way ahead to chapter 10. We're going past all of that typology, symbolism, Melchizedek and temple stuff, and we're going to get to some of what it means, right? And here you'll see right at the start, shadow, the foreshadowing, but it's since this has happened, right? We're building on that idea that the Old Testament foreshadowed Christ who has come. Chapter 10, verse 1, this is page 1006. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And this is the Old Testament sacrificial system. For, here's the important point, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible, let me reemphasize this, for anything that you offer to God to be good enough to please God as a result of or as an overturning of your sin. There is nothing you can do before him. His wrath is complete and against every thought and word and deed. And so the Old Testament also was incomplete without its fulfillment in the Messiah. But the Messiah has come, verse five. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. You don't need me to kill a bunch of animals for you, but a body you have prepared for me. God wants to dwell with man as a man. Verse 6, repeating the idea, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me of me in the scroll of the book. Right? So this is culminating the completion, the surpassing of all things in Christ. Skip ahead to verse 19. Because of this better blood, right? Therefore, brothers, we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What are the holy places? The holy places are the highest heaven. So again, Christ has pierced the veil between God and man. The God whose face looks like wrath on this world right now. By faith in Christ, you can see that it is not wrath. His wrath is against the devil and his angels, the devil's angels, and all those who would ally themselves with him. But he has made a way, narrow though it be, for your faith to see that he is a good God who provides all that you need in every time and place sufficient to help you through this wilderness journey that you live in here and toward that promised land, which is most surely coming. Since we have confidence, he says, since we know that God is for us, not against us, that we could enter these holy places, verse 20, by the new and living way, that's his body, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and it's same sentence, but see this here. What is the new and living way by which you can know God is for you and not against you? The very flesh of Christ. And what is this meal we're about to eat? What did he say in the gospel reading a moment ago? It's the very flesh of Christ, right? So you enter the holy of holies, the highest heaven, as Christ descends and joins with you in his body and blood, given as the final and complete covenant of mankind's salvation. And verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right There you have a reference both to the blood of Christ, which enters you to clean your conscience and the washing of your body with water. He doesn't use the word baptism, but there's only one thing in the New Testament that says wash people with water. And that's this thing we call holy baptism. So again, knowing that Christ has baptized you, knowing that he sprinkles your heart clean with a clean conscience, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Remember how it said we need to pay more close attention to what we know. Same idea here. Hold fast to your hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, to close, I want to look at briefly chapter 12, those selected verses that are there in the bulletin for you. You can look in the Pew Bible if you like, but it's also there in the bulletin. I'm just going to read it again and comment briefly as we go through this, remembering the main idea here. Christ has surpassed all things, 
and that we are to cling to, to guard this idea that his blood has propitiated all of our sins as a hope of us having a new life in the life of the world to come. And that many before us have believed this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so closely entangles. Now, what does that look like? How do you lay outside weights and sins? Well, I'll tell you, when you know something isn't good for you, you stop doing it. That's part of it. You encourage your brothers and sisters at church to pick up the Bible, to pray the Psalms, to be here more often, to lift up our voices as if God is real because he is. You lay aside the sin by asking Jesus, help me lay aside my sin. Jesus, help me repent. And let us, it says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. The path of the Christian life is not one of victory, but of endurance, of standing firm, of making it through, of of wandering in a wilderness, knowing that it is our God who leads us to a promised land. As I said before, thereby, verse 2, looking to Jesus. I mean by looking to the Lord's Supper. I mean by looking to your baptism into his holy name. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who? Great gospel. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Notice the endurance again. That was his life too. You are like him in your endurance. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't let the fact that this life is full of futility and full of shame stop him from overcoming it by trusting the promises of God to him. So also you run the same race by trusting in what he has promised you, that he's for you, that he has risen. Hallelujah, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, verse 12, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This is not cause for depression. This is cause for certainty. You have a true and actual God. Not a story, not a statue, not a dream, but an almighty creator who knows full well everything that's wrong with this planet and who has decided to burn it, but wants to grab you from the midst of the fire. So pick up your hands, strengthen your knees, know that nothing can separate you from the love of God, and then verse 13, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape, if we reject him who warns from heaven. There is a warning with Christianity. You can't go back to the pagans. You can't follow their stories. You can't believe in their gods. And if you try to tinker with their idolatry, eventually their idolatry will become your own. And so we are to look different. We are to stand set apart. What does that mean? It's pretty simple, I think, these days. If you take a step back, it means you know abortion's wrong. You know the murder of children is wrong. You know the enslavement of people overseas for the sake of banks is wrong. You know that pornography is wrong. You know that divorce is wrong. You know that transgenderism is wrong. You know that lying is wrong. You know that theft is wrong. You know that discontent and always wanting more is wrong. You know that trying to be completely secure in this life as if nothing could ever touch you is wrong. And so you set aside that by saying to Jesus, I repent of these things. 
I find them in my heart. I find the trial of my own sin. I find my own covetous and idolatrous mind. But that is not who you, Jesus, have declared me to be. And so that is not who I, Jesus, want to be. Because you have opened the way to the eternal Father by your flesh and blood. So then make me, make us to be those who endure. And not like those who shrink back. For indeed, he says, yet once more, verse 27, indicating the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that are made. He's going to shake. He's going to destroy this planet. But why is that? In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remove. What cannot be shaken? Christ, his ascension. He's gone beyond it all. And thereby also your faith in Christ cannot be removed, cannot be shaken. So again, when you see things not going the way you would like them to go, it's not wrong to say, dear Jesus, may my country be better? May my city be better? May I have a happy life here? You can say that. Just when it doesn't happen, if it doesn't happen, know that that doesn't mean anything. Know that that too will pass. Know that this is why it's going to go to hell. And know that this is why you may continue to hold tight to the hope, not of eternal life here, but of your death here, releasing you into a life that is beyond imagination. One so good that you can only kind of picture it by imagining a mountain where a lion lays down with a lamb and where a child plays with a viper, right? And where every tear is wiped from your eyes. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We're doing that already this morning, but you're going to do it as you come forward and receive his body and blood. For our God, this bread and wine is a consuming fire that is one which has purged you of your sin, which will destroy all evil to save you from it. And indeed does this that you might shine like stars in heaven yourselves, members of the Son of God himself, Jesus our Lord. In Jesus' holy name.